0: This is
1: guys.
0: It's a second down and three. Jackson takes it himself. Look at him dart back and forth. Oh, he broke his ankles. Now he's got an entourage and he's got a touchdown. He is Houdini. What a play! 47 yard touchdown run by Remember That Guy, the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players, past and present. I'm one of your hosts, James, and while I nurse these broken ankles, why don't I go ahead and turn the mic over?
1: Thankfully, I'm about eight months post-ankle break myself right now, so Diaz, back with you once again. And what a special guest we have. It's actually the bone fragment that is loose in the defender's ankles. Please introduce yourself. That sounds unpleasant.
2: I don't know if I would want to be that, but you know I appreciate the setup anyway. It's me, the very special guest, Xavier.
0: You don't want to be the after effects of a terrible injury visited upon you by the fact that Lamar Jackson is just better than everyone else on the football field every time he takes it?
2: Probably not. I'd like to just enjoy watching it without having to feel it. That's fair. I I was able to make my point in that sentence anyway. (laughs)
0: Let's, Let's not waste any time. Guys, we want to talk about history here and making memories. It was the history that everyone was waiting for in the Bronx. Looked for a little bit like it was getting dicey, but... Indeed, this last week, the Orioles did get their eighty-second win, number eighty-two, one that we were all waiting for. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. X. We're talking about the home run chase. That's right. Munanata Murakami hit his fifty-sixth home run this year. He broke Sadaharu O's record for the most in the Nippon Leagues by a Japanese-born player. Sixty-one at
2: bats. Wait, they didn't pitch around him to potentially walk him like twenty games in a row, like every other person who almost. So, broke how many strikeouts was that? How <laughs> many strikeouts was that in the Orioles series? Five. I'm trying to contribute to the Japanese home run <laughs> h- home run race, can you come uh, over here with this? Don't no we're we're talking about the history making MLB run by Kyle
0: Rowley, big dumper himself in Seattle. His pinch hit, walk-off home run, was the first ever to send a team to the postseason, first ever to clinch a postseason
2: berth. History was made. Uh and Xavier, uh, you wanted to talk about something else? You know what? I do love the big dumper. I mean, it was really great to see but Scott surveys is the Mariners head coach service him on the field with a cigar in his mouth, taking it out to call out the big dumper to a bunch of cheering fans after breaking a 21 year playoff draft. That was very good. That made me very happy, but because you set me up for it so much and I have been talking about it, Aaron judge did break the AL home run record at 62. I. Did not think he was going to get it in New York just based on the fans booing every time he got a hit, if it wasn't a home run. Just thinking about how uncomfortable that would make me and how uncomfortable that probably made him. I mean, he'd walked like 50 times and then struck out like 30 times. Just so much pressure on him anytime he hits contact for it to be out of the park. But he got it. Uh, Two of the three triple crown ones just missed out to lose a rise, finishing second, batting average. But big thing. Did you know that his on-base percentage was 420 and his slugging was 69? It's incredibly nice. It's very So 690? It's 690, yeah. I was going to say, because actually, hold on, 69 is an atrocious slugging. It's it's actually 425 and 686, but it's close enough that I wanted to bring it up. Aaron Judge, incredible season. Very happy about that, but really, I just want to see the Yankees win the World Series. It kind of doesn't matter if you know, we lose in the ALDS to the Guardians for the Rays. People aren't going to remember too much about that. But I've done Aaron Judge to death. Didn't want to talk about a couple different other things.
1: There are other things.
2: Yeah, so I'm going to start with the sad one and then go into everything else. If you haven't seen it, a big investigative report done by Sally Yates came out about the NWSL, the... Women's Soccer League in America, and a very bad culture of abuse in systemic emotional and sexual misconduct. It is a very tough read. Some of the things are awful, just absolutely awful, from multiple head coaches and figures of authority stemming from youth level to professional level, and it's just You know, it's terrible to look at all the things that these women went through and how long they went through it and how abusive coaches were able to just get fired because the people knew they were abusive but then signed NDAs so then new teams hired them without knowing that they were fired for sexual abuse. Like, how does that make any sense? You know, I'm hoping that this really... Gives the NWSL a chance to clean house and provide an actual good environment for these women who are incredible professional athletes and deserve to be safe in their place of work. So I, I'm, I'm really hoping that things improve after that. That was a downer. I, I get it. I know it's not a, it's not a fun thing to talk about, and it's not an easy thing to talk about. If people want to look it up, just Google NWSL Yates Report, and and, and you'll see it.
1: One one comment, one comment. Fuck those guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, fuck them all. Sorry, 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 sorry. Fuck those pieces of shit. They do not deserve to be called guys. Mm, mm,
0: Good distinction. Our apologies to the concept of guy for that temporary slander. Is it libel if it's a podcast?
2: Like, does a podcast count as print in libel law? I don't think so. I I feel like it'd have to be slander because it's, I bet you there are lawyers who have made a lot of money debating that one thing, knowing how the legal profession works. But enough about that. The Jets won again. Zach Wilson with the best Jets fourth quarter performance by a quarterback since 2000. Not a high bar, but still good enough to beat the Steelers in Pittsburgh. I mean, the Jets are now 2-0 on the road, both against AFC North teams, which is pretty fun. I guess they can't beat AFC North teams at home, but, you know, that's a, that's another story. And then the last thing I want to talk about was I was watching the Europa League because I needed something on in the background while working today to not have my brain explode. And Mix Discarude was playing for Ammonia Nicosia of Cyprus against Manchester United. For people who don't remember Mix Discarude, he was a believe, Norwegian-American soccer player who committed to the U.S. national team in, like, 2008, 2009 and was a U.S. national team player for seven years and went to the World Cup in 2014 instead of Landon Donovan and wore the number 10 but didn't actually appear in any games. And I hadn't heard his name uttered in, like, six years. I had no idea he was still active, let alone
1: playing in Cyprus or Ammonia Nicosia. I'm glad you just said that name again. I thought that sounds so made up, Ammonia Nicosia. Like what's the fucking Swedish thing that the the Muppet says. Like that sounds like Muppet language to me. Swedish chef? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like it, it sounds like you just like a, Italian Muppet language is what you just <laughs> spoke when you when you said that name of that Cyprus club. Well,
2: if we have any Cypriot listeners. I do think your country is beautiful and also very interesting geopolitically. Love listening and learning about Cyprus. But there is also a guy on Ammonia Nicosia who is more interesting than Mixed Discarude because his name is Cheralambos. Cheralambos. C-H-A-R-A-L-A-M-B-O-S space C H A R A L A M B-O-U-S. The only difference in his first and last names is an extra U added right near the end.
0: If I saw that, I would assume it was some object, some like just obscure thing, and there's an American and British spelling of it, and you were just showing the two of them. It's just this bullshit U in the second one?
2: Yes. That is the only difference between chair
1: lambos, chair lambos, and I do love it very much. (laughs) It sounds like just like a hipster ripoff of Duran Duran. We're, we're trying to go super obscure. <laughs> here. We're going to make our own music. We're going to mess around a little bit. That's what that sounds like.
0: We're still going to very clearly be influenced by Duran Duran because they're uh, incredible and their influence it shows up in all kinds of music today.
1: Why, why, why couldn't there be a Duran Duran tribute band? You know, why not? But, you know, a guy I want to talk about, kind of just the next evolution of Duran's Durant, uh Kevin Duran's, is going to look like nothing in comparison to the French Wonderkind Folks, I hope you've been able to watch these last two games on American TV. It was probably your first chance to see the future of basketball. Victor Wembanyama. If that's the first time you've heard that name, it's going to be the first of probably about a million times you're going to hear it over the course of the next two decades.
0: It sucks that Rudy Gobert got it in time to get the Eiffel Tower. I'm really pissed off that the Eiffel Tower is not available for Victor Wembenyama. Well, to
1: clarify, Gobert is the Stifle Tower because... That's true. ...because of his rim protection. I think Tori fell is sitting there right for Victor Wembenyama to claim the name. For the uninitiated. Hard to be hyperbolic about this kid. 7'4", with a near 8-foot wingspan. He has Katie's bag, as far as playing on the perimeter. Crossovers, elevating over such a smooth stroke from three obviously there's really not going to be anybody in the world that can block his jump shot and then defensively ultra very well on the parameter and of course anybody that comes anywhere near the rim while he's there i mean good fucking luck 7-4 with a near eight foot wingspan folks he is the player that you would create when you were bored at home with your copy of nba 2k7 and you're like let me just max out every single setting i can And let me just create this absolute fucking freak of a basketball player. That freak has come to life. And his name is Victor Wembanyama. James, I know you are a little uh, bearish on the hopes of the Spurs getting him. But I just need to put in my word. You are a marquee franchise. And we know that they rigged the lottery. Are
0: the Spurs still a marquee franchise? Like, I'm not trying to dispute. They have had an unprecedented, not unprecedented, but an incredibly good run of success over the last 20 years.
2: They're still an ABA franchise. Yeah, but they need, they, they're very good at having a very, very tall gentleman play basketball for them.
1: Well, I, I want to say too, like, you know, don't get it twisted. Wembenyama is like a cocky asshole, which I love about him. Scoot Henderson is the best player for G League Night. He's probably the number two prospect. And they asked Wembenyama about him. He said... Basically, oh, he's an amazing talent. And if I was never born, he'd probably be the best guy in this draft class. That's the kind of just, like, level of, like, I mean, we, we love a good French villain, do we not? The French just make great villains. Very oui. uh, May uh, oui. Oui, oui. And uh is... Xavier and I freaked out over Luka Doncic some years ago because we knew ahead of time and we tried to warn everybody. And I just, I cannot impart on everybody enough. As hype as I was for Luca, I am twice as hype for Victor Wembanyama. Maybe not as much of a feel for the game that Luca had. That's what makes Luca so elite. But holy shit, the physical gifts. He's the most gifted physical basketball player of all time. He's the greatest basketball prospect of all time. I'll say that right now. I don't think it's ridiculous at all. Tools that he has on display and what he represents to a team that can take him, if he hits his ceiling... Ceiling is the greatest player of all time. It just simply is.
0: I don't trust the ping pong balls, man. I trust that Greg Popovich, if he wants to put on a losing team, he's the greatest coach of all time. He can make the best tank job of all time. I
1: don't doubt that for a second. I just don't trust the ping pong balls. Well, here's my sell job to you. What better narrative is there than the player that's going to come in and change the NBA forever, hitting his first year or two at least? to be coached by the greatest head coach of the modern era. That is as great a story as I can ever possibly put together. Brett Brown, development coach down there, he gets a chance to work with Wembenyama. I can, I can spin the narrative pretty easily.
0: I'll try to believe. I'll do my best. But you know, it's hard to believe in good things in sports nowadays because I don't know if you guys have heard. The floodgates have opened for cheating scandals. <laughs> I want to say I think the poker ones, but if, so there's there's been a poker cheating scandal where a woman seems to have just played statistically bad poker, not that bad, but like bad enough that a guy raised a stink and like went back and threatened her and got the money back afterwards, saying that he, he imagined she cheats. There's there's a poker cheating scandal going on. There's a fishing cheating scandal going on where they were stuffing lead weights in fish fillets apparently for years. Just this morning, I swear to God, there's an Irish step dance cheating scandal.
2: Oh my God! How can you? Keep it's, that? So it's
0: it's it's there's a judge and a coach who have been having an illicit relationship for many many years and like <laughs> have been exchanging sex for scores. So that just broke an Irish step dance, but this is all obvious. Like the floodgates open because of, we're back to butt buzzing. The Wall Street Journal this week reported on chess.com's analysis. The Wall Street Journal is talking about chess cheating. Hans Neiman was basically thrown to the wolves by this chess.com analysis. I think appropriately so, if everything that's in is correct. He is estimated to have cheated on chess.com in at least a hundred matches. He definitely cheated, if these allegations are true, in ones where money was exchanged. So he has cheated people out of money. And far be it for me to like throw praise on the incredibly right-wing Wall Street Journal, but I did very much enjoy the last line of the writing. Neiman shared his own views of Chess.com's anti-cheating methods, and then they insert a quote that had been asked of him uh, quite some time ago. They have the best cheat detection in the world. So with that being said, with all of this data out there, it should come as no surprise that when Hans Niemann did yesterday on October 5th show up to the U.S. Chess Championships, he was given a full metal wand shakedown. Now, you can say that they do check the entire body. That's absolutely true. Do they spend a little bit of extra time on the butt? The video's (laughs) out there for you to see. Make your own conclusions. I would really love for him to just admit to one thing that's very important. He had admitted initially. He's like, yeah, no, I cheated in like two times on Chess.com, once when I was 12 and once when I was 16. If this analysis is true and Chess.com has incredibly good cheat detection, the thing that happens most of the time is they will come to a player, particularly if it's a high-ranking and well-known player, when they have allegations. They're like, hey, we're going to give you a chance to get out ahead of this. We don't have to release analysis if you come clean about it. We'll restore your scores and act as if those games never happened. Almost all the time people do this, like some guys have admitted, I look, I just wanted to see how good your cheat detection is. I wanted to test it sometimes. So uh, it's never really come to this before. They've never made it this public, but Hans Nieman just seems to continue to be obstinate about it. If these allegations are true, he's cheated significantly more recently than that 16 that he copped to. So I would love for him to confess so I can stop scouring the web for stories about this because I feel like it's... A disregard of my duty at this point to not present you live updates every week of butt Buzzing.
2: So my favorite thing about this is that the article I read today is that not only did they use a metal, a metal detector on him, they used a special detector that is supposed to detect radio frequency signals coming out of the body and can also detect silicon devices that are not on. So... If there were something silicon maybe hidden in one of his parts of his orifices. body. One orifices. of his orifices. They technically believe they could have detected it with the thing that they had him go through. Well,
0: if he ever did that, there's obviously no way he would ever do it again at this point.
2: It is just funny, though, that he will almost always have to be checked with a little bit of extra attention on the ass at every tournament he goes to from now on.
0: Indeed. Perhaps someday he'll earn a proper sobriquet for this outpouring of cheating that's come out of there. But sobriquets, nicknames, that is the name of the game this week. I was inspired by the power. You, Diaz, bringing that to us, it made me think about the power of a really good nickname. There is something that is really great about how it can very quickly give you a distillation of just what is the general feeling about this player. like what feelings do they engender amongst the fan bases how do people view them view their career sometimes it is just good branding like chocolate thunder doesn't tell you that much about daryl dawkins but it sounds phenomenal and there's a story in every name some of them i think are particularly good and i wanted us to share those stories about nicknames this week
1: We love nicknames, and what people don't realize is sometimes the nickname becomes so ubiquitous that it just becomes the name. I mean, I can't remember the last time that I called Dr. J Julius Irving. I've never once called Magic Johnson Irvin Johnson. A great nickname becomes the name. It becomes the identity.
0: They have a lot of power and influence, I think, in someone's career, and that's kind of what I wanted to focus on. Online today. Now, there's been in the course of human history a lot of debate over what necessarily the power of a name is. I think it was Shakespeare who said, "What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet." So my guy would, were he not Purvis Ellison called, but Purvis Ellison is indeed the name of the guy that I want to bring today. Purvis Ellison, ringing any bells?
2: It sounds familiar. Can't say I know too much about him.
1: Say, I am not Hector Salamanca. I'm in the middle of a Breaking Bad rewatch. Because I'm not ringing any bells on that
0: one. <laughs> I enjoyed that very much. Uh, I hope that you enjoy the story of Purvis Ellison, which begins on April 3rd in 1967 in Savannah, Georgia. That's you know, Southern Hospitality. It's known as the Hostess City of the South, or the Forest City. Because uh, they grow a lot of live oaks there. There's a lot of, lot of big trees. Something they don't grow in Savannah, the oldest city in Georgia, is a whole lot of athletes. BFD, Bucky Fucking Dent, maybe the single most famous athlete coming out of Savannah, Georgia. It's not a very deep pool down there in Savannah, but despite this, when Purvis Ellison gets to Savannah High School this is the first time we really get like any kind of information about his basketball play. Under Coach Ron Love for the Savannah Blue Jackets. Savannah does not have a robust high school sports presence in Georgia, despite this. With Purvis Ellison playing at center, he's a very big kid, hits his growth spurt early on in high school. They get multiple sub-region conference championships and one time make the Class 4A Final Four in the state. Even though this is basketball in the South and not like football in the South, it is still a very big deal for a relatively small high school like Savannah High School to make it up there. So Purvis Ellison is highly sought after, but eventually he decides that he is going to go to the Louisville men's program headed at the time by coach Denny Crum. Denny Crum was a former UCLA player under the wizard of Westwood, John Wooden. And then he became an assistant coach under John Wooden for a while until he got hired to Louisville in 1971. He's really the one that like has made Louisville into the basketball power that it is. He wins their first ever championship, in 1980. Uh, they move into the more prestigious at the time, Metro conference during this and, he really kind of elevates their status in one way by kind of pioneering the practice of scheduling big games early on in the schedule, both to just instantly drive up interest because you want eyeballs on the game and you want to kind of build confidence if you can get some of those big wins early on. Also just allows him to display his unflappable demeanor early on that earns him the nickname Cool Hand Luke. It's also known as Mr. March because by the time Purvis Ellison comes to Louisville in the last 14 seasons... They have made the tournament 11 times, made it to the Final Four five times, and as I mentioned, they had that one 1980 Natty against his alma mater, UCLA. So this is the environment that Purvis Ellison walks into, and it is very good for him, because Denny Crum is all about a high post offense. And so this... Big kid, center, coming in, immediately in his freshman year starts all 39 games on the 1985-1986 season that is so built around this big man high post offense, they become known as the Doctors of Dump. When they get to the tournament, this freshman, who has been third in the team in minutes per game, third in shots, second in steals, and first in rebounds, this kid goes to another level. They don't just make it to the tournament. They don't just make it to the Final Four. They make it all the way back to the championship. And while he is quiet in their very first game against Drexel, only plays like 20 minutes. From that point on, he just gains more and more momentum. The final three games, including the championship, double-doubles in each of them. And in that championship, he has a game-high 25 points as they beat Coach K's Blue Devils by a score of 72-69, to which would be very nice, except it is a score that was scored by Duke, so it is disqualified. (laughs) Blue
1: Devil... In the details.
0: The Blue Devil gets blue balls this time. It is not nice, but Purvis Ellison's performance was incredibly nice. A phenomenal regular and postseason. It is enough to get him several accolades. He gets all region, all tournament, and becomes the second ever freshman to win the most outstanding player. Do you know who the first ever freshman in 1944 to win the most outstanding player award?
1: 1944?
0: It, it's it's not like a person you can figure out. This is a trivia thing where if you know it, you know it. It's some like fucking white dude from Utah named Arnie farron who wins it with oh, Utah in 1944. Yeah. Unless Never you learned knew learned. this trivia fact, I don't think it's something you can <clears throat> intuit. But Pervis Ellison becomes the second ever one. More importantly than all of these things, doesn't just earn him these awards; it earns him the nickname "Never Nervous purvis
2: It's a good nickname,
0: a very good nickname, and it sticks because Never Nervous Pervis just gets better really from that point on you know the next year they do finish first in the metro with an 18 14 record so they don't even make the tournament but he himself improves his junior year they once again win first in the metro ellison is the centerpiece you know, all the other guys that had kind of been in the starting lineup with him in his freshman year have graduated this point so he is the fulcrum that everything revolves around and he wins metro player of the year scoring at least 23 points in all three of their march madness games that third one They do unfortunately lose to number one ranked Oklahoma, but they're back. And they got one more year to come from Purvis Ellison. They got a senior year, and they do only finish second in the Metro. And in fact, he does not repeat as Metro Player of the Year. He'll have to settle for first team All-American. And they do (laughs) make it back to the third round of the tournament. They face the number one seed again. This time it's Illinois, and they do again lose. Admittedly, Purvis is not all that impressive in this tournament run. We're coming up on the 1989 NBA draft, and I want to take a moment to, to step back and, again, talk about what's the power of a name. Because on paper, you've got a kid that had a phenomenal freshman year run and has continued to be steady in there. But talk about how a lot of sports, how sometimes college kind of anticipates things that are going to come up in professional leagues. That time that they made the 1986 championship, that's the last time Denny Crum even makes the Final Four with Louisville. That high post offense is really starting to, as they get to the late eighties, fade out of fashion in college. And it's really becoming about outside shooting. So Denny Crum's never really able to catch up with that. So he's got this team that's really designed to like center these guys and, and make stars out of these big guys that are functioning in offense that for now in the NBA is still there. But as we know like, later on in his career, that same transition from a high post offense to an outside shooting will happen. And so You can argue like maybe someone should have been able to look at this draft and see that this guy had a strong run, but how much was there necessarily going to be going on? However, when you're talking about Never Nervous Purvis, I feel like a lot of those thoughts just go out the
1: window and and that that nickname just grants you some intangibles. You know what I'm saying? It, It becomes your identity. If I'm Never Nervous, if that's my name... I don't have the ability to. It's like, it's, it's almost like a fake it till you make it kind of thing.
0: Coaches always talk about those intangibles. And this time I think that really is kind of what sells them because in the 1989 draft, there's a lot of studs in there. We got Sean Rainman Kemp. We got Sean Ninja Elliott. We got Tim Bug Hardaway. Uh, Sir Flops a lot himself. Floppy Vladi Divak, who's actually the windshare leader of this draft. We have, fellow guy Nick Anderson in this draft. And despite all of that, Purvis Ellison is taken first overall in the 1989 draft. First round, first pick. Unfortunately, he is picked by the Sacramento Kings.
1: Oh no. A fate worse than death. I mean, they weren't full on Kings at this point yet. They were still a relatively competent NBA franchise. they would made the playoffs in the past, 18 years. Here's
0: what I'm gonna say. Every time we've come across a random like old Kings story, like how they're the team that kind of gave away Bill Russell for Ice Capes to come through their town, they've still been a completely unserious organization. <laughs> <laughs> like blanket condemnation of the Kings.
2: Exactly. Uh, <laughs> <ugly. laughs>
0: but the Kings are not the only thing that's gonna screw it up here. Kings draft our boy Purvis Ellison. And they bring him onto a team where the big off-season acquisition was a trade that brought everyone's second-least favorite Mormon, Danny Ainge, to the Sacramento Kings. Editor's note, number one is Mitt Romney with a bullet. Danny Ainge, the man so shitty, he gave himself his own nickname in Boston, decided to call himself El Terrible. That is the nickname that Danny Ainge gave himself as a Boston Celtic. Maybe that is why they traded him to Sacktown, because he's an insufferable jackass. And he comes and brings that insufferable jackass spirit to the Sacramento Kings. Now, he is admittedly the star this year for a pointless Sacramento Kings team. Part of that is because, wouldn't you know it, Purvis Ellison, a very highly drafted, talented college center, has had foot surgery his rookie season.
1: Ooh, that is yeah. not a good sign.
0: It's, it is not a good sign, and it's a refrain we've heard many times.
1: Especially back then, I mean, foot surgery was like a death sentence for basically any basketball player. So
2: this is two death sentences in one year for a basketball player, being on the Kings and foot surgery. No, it's, it's, it's not a very good time for him. And Danny
0: Ainge, who's the guy that's like soaking up all these minutes, averaging 20 points, he looks at this you know, highly touted rookie, highly drafted, and being the asshole that he is, he decides now you're not never nervous purpose anymore he gives him a new nickname and it's one that is unfortunately i think going to change the tides for Purvis elson's career he nicknames him out of service purpose ooh admittedly it's a pretty good burn like i do have to give danny Ainge that
1: but like that's just because he's a fucking like midget leprechaun white guy that's fucking insecure about the new rookie like- <laughs>
0: Here is because he wasn't good enough at baseball with the blue jays and he's like i guess i'll go play this other sport where i can just be more annoying and it's
1: effective unreal yeah i guess shit talk works a little better in basketball which if you are a low skill athlete like danny ainge you gotta get every little bit of leverage you can get
0: he names him out of service purpose and as danny ainge becomes the centerpiece of this fucking sacramento kings team uh it means that during the offseason, Purvis Ellison is not seen as like a keystone. And so he's in part of the trade that sends Malone to the Utah Jazz. That's right. The Doctor of Fadology, Jeff Malone, named the Doctor of Fadeology for both his jump shot and his high top fade. This all leads to Purvis Ellison ending up on the Washington Bullets. They are this time led by Bernard King. Bernard King yeah. just the year before. Bernard, do you do you know the nickname that Bernard King had earned the year before? At this point, in like 1991.
2: Ooh, uh, you know what? Knicks fans just always called him the King. So I, I don't know, you know, what other nickname he had. But
0: how about the Texas Massacre for scoring over 50 points in back-to-back games against the San Antonio Spurs and Dallas Mavericks one season? The that is Texas also a good Massacre. Nickname. So that is what he is when he is leading this Bullets team in 91. Elson. Plays in 76 games. That is, I'll go ahead and spoil a little bit, career high for him. But he does come off the bench in most of those. However, the next season, in 1992, he's now going to be starting a little bit more. He plays slightly fewer games, only 66, but he starts in 64 of them. He has a career high of 38 minutes per game. He has 20 points per game. Now, is all this because this is a very bad Washington Bullets team? Sure. Is it still enough to get him most improved player? You bet your ass it is. So 1992, out of service purpose, hey! Maybe we have a moment to change the narrative here. We've had two years of playing at least three quarters of the game. You're starting to find your place here, Diaz. I think, like I, I appreciate that you put that point up earlier of uh, speaking it into existence and and having that mentality about the name. However, I, I'm afraid that out of service purpose, it, it might have been something that affected the mentality of him because he does not continue to clear 50 games either of the next two seasons with Washington becomes more and more relevant. And eventually, after he's released by Washington, he signs with Boston. His first season with Boston, he sits out the first third because he is, at the time, unfortunately, out of service. But comes back in later on, makes his only ever playoff run. 95-96 season, the Boston Celtics lose to the Orlando Magic, led in part by Nick Anderson. Uh, Unfortunately, this is then the postseason where Nick Anderson earns
2: his Nick the Brick nickname. Uh, Poor Nick Anderson. It is, It is a
0: but Purvis Ellison, you know, maybe now here in Boston, he can turn things around. In fact, the next year, he plays a very nice 69 games and is a, a contributor to a not particularly good Boston team. This is as they have, I believe, Paul Pierce, but really no one else ahead of who's going to be a major contributor on the 2008 team. And then in the offseason, he hurts his toe moving furniture. And it costs him all but six games the next year which if you're trying to avoid the nickname out of service purpose, is not very good.
2: His feet, man. All about the feet.
0: Well, it's not just all about the feet. It's apparently also about his knees. He plays 69 games that year. He misses one full season over the next four to the point where he only plays 69 games that entire next four season stretch to finish out his time in Boston. Oof. He's signed off the street for a little bit by the Sonics the next year. Sure, you want to play with Gary the Glove Payton for a little bit, you can do that. But he plays for nine games and says, "This is my body cannot hold up with this anymore. And so he retires after having had at least some portion of 11 seasons under his belt. At this point, he starts getting into coaching. Goes to New Jersey with his family, gets into AAU, his team with the Life Center Academy. While he's with the Life Center Academy, a big incubator of talent. They end up sending, you know, human heat check, the island, Dion Waiters. And <laughs> during this time, once they're able to kind of remove him from this NBA career that he's had, they're able to recognize the college career of never nervous purpose a little bit more. The guy gets to get the recognition that he deserves, like having his number 42 retired by the Louisville program, only the fourth player at the time to have their number retired by Louisville. Now five, does have a little bit of unpleasantness with Louisville. KP, Kenny Payne, had been a former teammate of his. And then while he was the Kentucky coach, he called up his buddy. He was like, hey, I understand that like you finished six class credits short of getting a degree when you left after four years. He's like, yeah, you should take some online courses. That's what I did. That's how I got my degree while I've been coaching and encourages him to do that. Things get messed up, he says with this. Administration seems to have just goofed up a lot of his registration and he never ends up being able to finish it out. So the the relationship with Louisville is a little rocky, but one relationship that is not rocky is him and his kids. He's got two kids, both of them have followed him in basketball. One of them is Asia Ellison, who gets bonus points for almost sounding like Asia Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's the oldest of the two. She has an undergrad career with the Terps for a little bit, has one year at Texas M as a grad student. But during all of this, here's the thing: Asia Ellison doesn't have her own nickname, and so because of this, I think she ends up unfortunately having to bury you. Know, we all have to live on with the legacies of the names of our parents before us, and I believe, out of service without having anything to you know knock it back, she's, she's unfortunately followed that. Good news is she is now, uh, as of this last year, part of ESPN's college basketball coverage. So she's doing fine. Asia Ellison's out here with the sport reporting from the sidelines. We love to see it. We also love to see the son, Malik Ellison, who did get a nickname in high school, Missile. I could not get an explanation for it. But Missile <laughs> is a pretty good nickname. Missile is enough to, I think, kind of now shed the yoke of that out-of-service purpose curse from the family. Now, does he spend a little bit of injured time? Yeah. But then he fights back. He goes to the Czech League for a little bit, comes to the G League, and then actually just last month, September 16th, He signed a contract with the Hawks. Malik Ellison will be appearing in the NBA this season. So the missile is making a name for himself. He's making his dad proud. And he's carrying on the name of who I think is a true guy, Purvis Ellison. Because I think it goes to show, again, as I wanted to say, nicknames tell a story, but I do think they can influence it a little bit. I think that reputation that Purvis Ellison had coming out of college, really benefited from that incredible branding of Never Nervous Purvis. And then I think that, you know, absolute asshole, Danny Ainge, really put a fucking hex on our guy Purvis Ellison right here with, again, an admittedly good burn out of Service Purvis. Like, it's pretty good, but not if it's your teammate. Like, that's good (laughs) if you're playing against somebody. hate Danny Ainge, but I do not hate this guy. And so you can call him Never Nervous. You can call him out of service. Either way, no matter what you call Purvis Ellison, I call him a guy.
2: You like that. I I like that a lot. Louisville basketball players have had some good nicknames in the past. I remember there was a guy named Dr. Duncan Stein who went to Louisville, which is also very good.
0: Carrying on the Doctors of Dunk legacy. That's been, (laughs) if anyone was going to continue to claim it, that's the place to do it.
1: Ben, like you were saying, James, I mean, you had Spider Mitchell come out of Louisville as well. Teddy Bridgewater has somehow never had a good nickname, even though his own name is so cool. I guess that's maybe why he doesn't need one. Yeah, love Purvis Ellison. I, I think there's, there's good support for your theory because we did get that brief glimpse of how good he could be. One year, he's finally healthy. He averages 20 in Washington. Follows it up with 17.4 the next year. So, I mean, you cannot deny the skill. And you cannot deny that it's all Danny Ainge's fault. Everything bad that's ever happened in basketball is Danny Ainge's fault. The fact that they had a bottom in the basket covers at first when they put it there, that was Danny Ainge's idea. The fact that you couldn't dribble at first, that was Danny Ainge's idea. When they were in the front court and you couldn't come into the back court, it was eight aside. That was Danny Ainge's idea. That synthetic ball, do you remember that bullshit in 2006? (laughs) Also have it on good authority. That was Danny Ainge's idea. So Danny Ainge, what's, what's the word I want to look for? I'm trying to think of some portmanteau where it's like poison and guy. I can't get there. I just can't get there. We'll have to come back. It's all right. We'll workshop it and bring it up next time. There'll be enough Danny Ainge
2: slander in the future, I'm sure.
1: Well, we'll certainly slander Danny in the future. But Xavier, if you don't mind, I'd like to go second. Um, and yeah, I think I, I had to go to the sport of boxing when it comes to this one, just because I think boxing is a sport in and of itself that lends itself to spectacles. You have these crazy entrances, dramatic music. These guys are built up to be larger than life. And the nicknames have have a real big part of that. You look back in the 80s. I think the 80s was the heyday of nicknames for boxing, because for one, first of all, All four of the guys that I'm about to say were at the top of the sport in the same division. And this is going to be crazy if you're a modern boxing fan. This might be something you don't quite understand. But the best fighters all fought each other. And you got to see all the great fights that you actually wanted to see.
0: Are you trying to tell me? That there wasn't some kind of just world where you had to have a bunch of hypothetical scenarios that would be able to resolve this argument amongst the fans?
1: Right, like imagine if you didn't have to wait 10 years for Pacquiao Mayweather, you didn't have to wait all that time for that fight to finally happen. Imagine a world where instead of tweeting at each other, Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury just signed the fucking contract and got in the (laughs) ring. (laughs) What? By the way, for the record, that's all Tyson Fury's fault at this point. He's being a fucking piece of shit. I know you love him, Xavier, but those negotiations are his fault. Anthony Joshua is accepting whatever terms. The Gypsy King can do whatever he wants in my eyes. He will never fall from grace for me. Listen, that's fine. And you know, that's, that's why he's going to be the Gypsy King, because nobody wants to claim him for their own, because he just marches to his own beat. And uh, I, I think being very unfair to Anthony Joshua. But anyway... Uh, To get back to, again, the golden era of boxing to me is the 80s. You had Roberto Duran, Mano de Piedra. You had Sugar Ray Leonard. Sugar is not his first name. (laughs) You had Marvelous Marvin Hagler. Funny enough, Marvelous did become his legal first name because he was pissed off that the announcers would not call him by Marvelous Marvin Hagler. So he said, fuck you. It's my real name now. Now you have to say it.
2: That's one of my favorite pieces of trivia, and it's the most boxing thing ever. Like, you only have an ego like that if you are a boxer or some sort of combat sport athlete. Right. Well,
1: you have to, and I mean, like, on a similar vein, you got George Foreman with his fucking ten kids all named George or Georgette. <laughs> um, so some fun stuff there. And I would be remiss if, in bringing up those three, I don't bring up Thomas the Hitman Hearns. Four all-time great boxers, four all-time great nicknames, they all fought each other at least once and really for a long time after that and even still today we don't see fighters like that but we did see a fighter like that we saw one guy who his top priority every time that he got in the ring was putting on a show for the fans i'm talking about your favorite italian boxer i'm talking about your favorite canadian boxer i'm talking about your favorite new jersey boxer and they're all the same person, I'm talking about Arturo Thunder Gotti. Love that's a, Arturo Gotti.
0: That's a very interesting melting pot to emerge from. A varying vibes from Canada and New Jersey, as I understand
1: it. Varying vibes that I think are able to reconcile themselves within New Jersey. So I think in that sense, it's kind of beautiful that that's where he ended up. I'll give you a quick speed run of that. So Arturo Gatti, born April 15th, 1972. He's born in Casino, Italy, uh, and raised in Lazio for the first couple years of his life until, as a boy, his family moves to Montreal. So he's in Montreal, Canada, and as he is growing older, he's starting to develop his boxing talents, but Montreal, Quebec, not quite a boxing hotbed. So he relocates to... America, goes to New Jersey, and goes to Jersey City, where Matt Paul, if you're listening, holding it down, the St. Peter's Peacocks, the pride of Jersey City, but the first pride of Jersey City was Arturo Gotti. Gotti moves to Jersey City, still in the gym, he finally finds a manager that he's able to connect with, and the manager actually convinces him, so Arturo, at first, is training to represent Canada. In the 1992, the famous Barcelona Games, the NBA Dream Team, Arturo Gotti's training to join the Canadian team. But once he gets a hold of his manager, they decide, you know what? We think we got something here, kid. It's time to go pro early. Uh, so in 1991, at the age of 19, he decides to forego that opportunity to represent Canada. And uh, he decides to go pro. First fight is June 10th at the Meadowlands Exposition Center, where he fights a guy by the name of Jose Gonzalez. Jose does not have much. He gets TKO'd in the third round. A a, a thorough dismantling victory for, for Arturo. Goes on to win his first five fights by knockout. Once more, he's back at the Meadowlands Arena. He also has two fights at the Blue Horizon, which is a classic boxing venue in Philadelphia. Was voted number one boxing venue in the world. By The Ring magazine, uh, The Rain being the foremost authority on that. Sports Illustrated noted that it is the last great boxing venue in the country.
0: What exactly makes a boxing venue great?
1: So, what makes a boxing venue great is two things. First of all, not a bad seat in the house. That's a very important thing. And okay. uh, the, the other most important thing is that the crowd is right on top of the fighters, very close. We want the people, not just the front row, but we want people in the first few rows. To We want it to be like your World experience, where you're going to be... You, in some, you
0: want like, a very <laughs> steep Coliseum, where there's ample room for people to cheer for
1: blood. Yes, absolutely. Flash zone. And the Blue Horizon, it's, it's, it's a shame that it's no longer open, was just a 1,400-person venue. So, truly a, a very intimate setting for, I think, this most intimate of sports, where two men or women go in there and just beat the fuck out of each other in the tight confined spaces they are not allowed to leave until one is declared the victor really that's the first time i've ever described boxing like that holy shit it is more barbaric than i've ever realized (laughs) i have a lot more respect for that guy that uh, you remember he, he didn't get the contract he wanted and he just stepped right out of the ring as soon as they ran the first bell I don't remember his name, yep. but I remember it happening. I have a lot more respect for him now. <laughs> but so he runs off those five straight knockouts. and the sixth fight, uh, he goes to the Trump Taj Mahal, which should have been the first sign that wasn't somewhere he was supposed to be. Doesn't get the knockout, but he does get a unanimous decision. Then goes on to lose his next fight to King Solomon. Great name. He loses a split decision to King Solomon at the Blue Horizon, but he's not to be deterred by this. So in his next 23 fights, 23 and 0, 19 knockouts, thrilling the crowds, do, doing what you get in there to do, which is to entertain. He's going all over the world at this point. Fights in MSG for a couple of these fights ends up over in the Netherlands once somehow. So he's making a name for himself. This brings us forward to 1998, which is going to be his first real marquee fight. Now, He has won the IBF junior lightweight title of the world by this point, but in doing so, he beat Tracy Harris Patterson. Not much, not much of a boxer, but it's a big fight with Angel Manfredi at Boardwalk Hall in Atlantic City. Now he gets TKO'd in the eighth round, but this is a fight that puts Gotti on the map for boxing fans because as Xavier can attest, Gotti, when he gets in the ring, He gets his fucking ass kicked a lot he doesn't care his face he gets swollen so quick he gets cut so quick makes it very apparent to the fans the kind of condition he's in never affects his, his ability to come forward never affects his want to or his how to he's in there and he's in there for a fight
0: so like okay
1: what's does he have any strategy or is he just not particularly good and gets the shit beaten out of him so he is, he is a very skilled fighter. Again, this is a guy that was training to represent Canada in the Olympics. He has the skill, but you can, you can turn a fighter into a boxer, but you can't make him not be a fighter, if that makes sense. When he gets the deep waters, he's going to revert back to what he knows best, which is, I'm going to throw as hard as I can, you're going to throw as hard as you can, one of us is going down. Manfredi loss was actually the first of three consecutive losses he had. So he loses a split decision thereafter to Ivan Robinson. And then loses the rematch with Ivan as well. It's some good fights coming back. Reyes Munoz, he gets a TKO in the first round. This is kind of just a bounce back fight for him. Joey Gamachi, he knocks out in the second round. This is one of the most brutal knockouts I've ever seen. Gamachi is kind of up against the ropes and like already out on his feet. But this was, you know... 2000s, we didn't really care about brains or like head injuries <laughs> protecting athletes at the time. So Gamachi eats about five or six more while the lights are already clearly out. It's a really, really, really tough scene, brutal knockout. He wins his next two fights, uh, TKO over Eric Jacobowski, uh, and then a win over Joe Hutchinson, which sets up his next big fight with Oscar De La Hoya. Doesn't go too well for Arturo. He makes it to the fifth round before he gets TKO'd. Again, a very entertaining fight. But the kind of trend that we see throughout his career is that once he steps up from A-level fighters to A-plus slash superstar level fighters, he's just not quite there.
0: A lot of the time when you're talking about a guy and it's someone I haven't heard of, they don't do well when they run up against the people I have heard of.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, that's, yeah, Oscar De La Hoya... That's yeah, no,
0: awesome. I, I know him. The
1: Golden Boy. Again, as, as we're Boy. going through the nicknames, which is, I think, one of the best nicknames in boxing history. Real shame what's, uh, what's happened to Delahoya lately. We'll not admit it, but is very clearly in the throes of cocaine addiction anytime he makes a public appearance. His Twitter, even sometimes, it's, it's, it's not a great scene. So the Golden Boy, we hope you get better. Arturo Thundergati got better in his next fight against Taryn Millay. I uh, gets a TKO in the fourth round. Again, this is one of those, we're going to schedule a, a what, what they call a tomato can to go out there for you to get your confidence back, to get a win back. And then the next fight was supposed to be a good fighter, but not a great fighter, but something, again, to help continue building that confidence for Arturo Gatti. But what the attendants at the Mohegan Sun Arena in Montville, Connecticut, didn't know that night is that they were about to witness, and the God, the greatest fight in the history of boxing.
0: Between the Las Vegas Aces and the Connecticut Sun
1: for the WNBA championship. <laughs> yeah.
0: Two heavyweights just going at it. Punch for punch.
1: Asia Wilson throwing left hooks like she's fucking James Tony out there. That's, that's a deep boxing reference. I'm proud I was able to pull out that one. But no, uh, I'm talking about on May 18th, 2002, Arturo Thundergatty makes his way into the Mehegan Sun Arena, and he's going to fight the pride of Boston, Irish Mickey Ward. Now, Mickey Ward, Irish Mickey Ward, excuse me. (laughs) Irish Mickey Ward was very much a, um, I don't want to call him quite a journeyman fighter, but he was. He was um, one of those guys, I've, I've mentioned it previously in talking about boxing. He's the guy you fight to prove that you're ready for the real guy, the mini boss. His most prominent fight besides this would have been uh, when he lost via unanimous decision to Zab Judah. Zab Judah would later go on to give Floyd Mayweather a pretty good fight. He enters the fight against Arturo Gatti with a record of 37 and 11. Now, again, 37 and 11 sounds great to anybody who's maybe not familiar with boxing. If you've racked up 11 losses, you're not really a top prize fighter. And this is basically the the idea here is this is gonna be the last big payday for Irish Mickey Ward. He knows he's a professional. Going out there, I'm taking the job, I'm fighting a better fighter than I am. I'm probably gonna get knocked out, but I'm gonna secure this last payday. But that doesn't mean he's gonna go out and take a dive or anything like that. He's still a competitor and he's still gonna go out there and he's gonna try to win. From the jump, it's very clear that we're gonna fight. Irish Mickey's type of fight. Arturo Gotti has the skill to be able to to stick and move and you know, not necessarily put on the show that the fans want, but if he fights a smart fight, he's going to win. Arturo doesn't really have any interest in this. Our back and forth from the get-go. In round four, uh, Arturo lands a vicious body shot. The, the issue is that it's a little too low below the belt line. So he gets a low blow on Mickey Ward, costs himself a point. Uh, Mickey does recover, comes back. At the end of the fifth round, it's literally five punches in a row and Mickey Ward lands Just left hook, right hook, left hook, right hook, left hook, all to the chin of Arturo Gatti as we get into the closing seconds of the fifth round. Gaddy doesn't make even a slight move to, pr- to try to protect his jaw. He just absolutely eats it. <laughs> and as we go to the end of the eighth round. As it gets to the close of the round, Mickey Ward lands one of his famous left hooks to the body of Arturo Gotti, And you can see Arturo definitely leans over a bit to clutch up at his body. But then the bell sounds and we go into now the greatest round in the history of boxing, which is round nine of Gotti Ward 1. If nothing else, you need to find three minutes at some point in your week to watch round nine of Mickey Ward versus Arturo Gotti. It's, it's, it's one of those that I've watched so many times. I can not only describe the exact cadence of the round to you, I can tell you what the commentators are saying at every point in this round. Emmanuel Stewart, one of the greatest trainers in boxing history, when he's not training the fighter, he's on commentary for HBO. The thing he points out right as they come out for the start of the round, he said, Mickey Ward hurt him with that body shot. He should go right back to the body. Larry Merchant saying, we're not sure how Arturo Gotti is gonna last in this type of a war. We, we know that Mickey
2: Ward can keep fighting through this kind of action.
1: One of the first punches Ward throws is that deep digging left hook to the body and just instantly, it's a kidney shot. The type of shot that almost any other fighter tripled over it in pain. They're gonna be writhing on their ground. Crumpled back. to the ground. Arturo Gotti does go to a knee.
0: And this knockdown counts.
1: He's, he's looking at the ref, Frank Cappuccino. Also just an incredible name.
0: No fucking way.
1: I'm telling you, Frank Cappuccino. There is no
0: way you're telling me about Frank Cappuccino the week after I learned about
1: Frankie Lasagna. Frank Cappuccino is, uh, is, the, is the referee for this fight. And honestly, Cappuccino plays an essential role in this fight becoming as legendary as it did because Cappuccino is an old school ref. Newer refs, and again, this is better for the fighters may have stepped in at some point in this ninth round. I'm not going to spoil everything. He lands that body shot, gets up at the count of nine, and it's just clear he's just not in great shape. He's got both of his arms are pinned down to his ribs to protect his rib cage. And basically the deal he's making is I cannot take another shot to the body. I will give you unlimited punches to my face because I would rather (laughs) be hit in the face than get hit in the body again right now. Does Mickey Ward oblige him? Mickey Ward absolutely obliges him. And and Ward smells blood at this point, right? He knows if I'm going to get him, I got to get him right now. I got to go for the knockout. So for the first minute of this round, after Gotti gets up, it's Ward just absolutely unloading on Gotti. Gotti stumbling across the ring. And at about the minute 50 mark, Gotti managed to tie up Ward. And you can just tell Ward's breathing heavy. I mean, it's people don't appreciate how... Energy draining it is to throw all of your body weight in the punches. But Ward very quickly gasses himself. And then Gotti starts coming back. He now has his win back. He's recovered from that kidney punch. And he starts absolutely unloading. At one point, he gets Ward backed up on the ropes. He lands a great one-two right to the face, and uh, Ward just nods at him. This is where Jim Lampley starts getting. When a professional like Jim Lampley is like losing control of his voice and getting emotional in the middle of a round, he just goes. Mickey Ward nods as 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 if to say, come on, come
0: on, come on, let's fight.
1: Like he's yelling at <laughs> the top of his lungs. And after this sequence, he says, can you believe there's still a minute and a half to go in the round? All this action has already happened in the first 90 seconds. Gotti continues to unload. Now gets to the point at about the minute mark. Ward takes the first minute to throw like crazy. Gotti takes the second minute to throw like crazy. Now Gotti can't get a break. He's like stumbling over leaning. Ward lands at about the 42nd mark, another one of those digging body hooks. Arms come down once more, and now Gotti is just in real bad sorts. Getting absolutely tagged. Jim Lampley's call. Just imagine
0: if you bought a ticket. Stop it, Frank. You can stop it any time. Arturo Gatti's out on his feet. Frank Capitino's gonna let him keep going.
1: Rings in my head. Finally gets down to maybe 15 seconds. Doddy ties him up again. and we get to the last 10 seconds of the round, it's literally just all three announcers yelling over each other because they can't fucking believe their shit they're seeing. Doddy starts coming back at the end of the round, throwing punches again. And Lampley's call finally as we approach the bell is, Doddy's going to survive the round. Makes it through round nine. We go back to our corners. And the message in the two corners could not be more different. In Irish Mickey Ward's corner, his brother is his corner man. And he just says, in a a very, I'm going to do my best Boston accent. (laughs) This guy's fucking finished. So he's encouraging him to go out there and get him.
0: You're very specifically doing a Christian Bale Boston accent because (laughs) Christian Bale does portray his brother in the one where Mark Wahlberg is Mickey Ward. And the whole time I've been thinking, why the fuck wasn't this in that movie?
1: So it's, I think, I don't remember if the movie ever actually got made, but I remember that being the premise if there were to be a sequel. Still hasn't been made, still presumably in development. Make this fucking movie. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I also understand why they wouldn't make the movie because it's, it's one of those where like, one of the biggest cliches in sports is, you know, oh, you couldn't write a script like this. But anyway... Yeah, the Christian Bale, this guy's fucking finished. And then in Arturo's corner, Buddy McGirt, one of the great trainers of all time, just says, look at me, Arturo. I'm not going to let you keep taking this type of punishment. Sounds like he's about to stop it. In fact, Mickey's corner thinks that it's been stopped. So when they ring the bell to start round 10, Irish Mickey Ward raises his hands as if in victory. But Arturo gets off his stool, comes over anyway, and Frank Cappuccino... Uh, in his uh, New York accent, no, no, fight not finished, last round. And uh, then we get Harold Letterman coming in. Harold Letterman, who always scores the fight, another just classic New York fighter. And they, they go, Harold, how do you have it through nine? And He's like, okay, Jim, the first thing I want to say is this round's going to be 30 seconds short because the damn timekeeper never stopped the clock. Anyway, he has it in favor of uh, Mickey Warden. Another just classic round going back and forth. No knockdowns in this round, but somehow miraculously, we make it to the end of round 10. We've went the distance. And when it goes to the cards, we have one person has it even. And the other two score it in favor of Irish Mickey Ward. Fun fact, very controversial. Because the, there was one round that Ward won 10-8 you get the knockdown it instantly becomes a 10-8 round one of the judges scored it a 10-7 round as if there had been two knockdowns this is likely just a clerical error but as it was with Roberto DiVincenzo I don't know how I could be such a stupid once the cards are signed it doesn't matter whatever errors were made on the cards that's it so if that round had been scored correctly then it would have been one judge having it for Ward one judge having it for Gotti And one having it a draw. So we would have reached a true draw decision. So very controversial. This sets up the trilogy of course. The next two fights. Gotti does adjust his style. Fight two. Pretty much just dominates it. There's some exciting moments. The third fight. Ward way outclassed by this point. He's now. The third fight happens a full year after he was already saying. This is my last fight. What gets really interesting in the third fight because Gotti ends up breaking his hand. Broke it on Ward's hip actually in the fourth round. So we get some of those exciting moments, but ultimately Gotti does prevail. But the brotherhood between those two is just something that I, I just I can't emphasize enough. It is remarkable. They've obviously after the first fight, both of these men need medical treatment. Gotti probably more than Ward having lost the fight. But Mickey Ward will always say, you know, I remember being in the hospital after that first fight and the first person that came to see me after my own family was Arturo Gotti got up from his own hospital bed, to come over and check on me. I, I said earlier like how barbaric this sport is and obviously it is, but stuff like that is just that gentlemanly respect that true professionals have for each other the way that they're able to truly become brothers. It's it's one of the most beautiful scenes in boxing after of course the fighters hug after both of the first two fights. The third fight, it's the entire corners. It's a fucking 15-person just big group hug in the middle <laughs> after their third fight because the love I, it becomes love at a certain point that that they have for each other. And Jim Lampley's call was I, I one of my favorite calls in the history of sports broadcasting honestly. He says what Oturo Gatti and Mickey Ward share, only they know. Only they can feel it. Only they can touch it. And we are blessed to bear witness. As you can imagine, after going through three wars of fights with this fucking guy, Gatti's, uh his best days are somewhat behind him. Bounces back with three more victories against lesser competition, we'll say. John Luco Bronco, Leonard Dorefti? I can't even say that. that's a weird name, not a good fighter. <laughs> and uh, Jesse James Leha, all of those happening at Boardwalk Casino. fun thing to point out, the last nine fights of Gotti's career all happened on the boardwalk, Boardwalk Hall. but getting those fights with his now elite notoriety as a result of the Mickey Ward trilogy, he does get another chance to fight for a unified title. Now uh, he goes up against Floyd Mayweather Jr. At Boardwalk Hall. And this is the fight that was dubbed Thunder versus Lightning. It makes sense. Arturo Thunder Gotti. Going against uh, Pretty Boy Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Money Mayweather. Floyd's had a lot of nicknames. Lightning was never one of them. But it works for the purposes of going against Thunder. Gotti gets outclassed. He never really gets hurt. But it's just clear from the first round. That these two are not competing in the same sport. Floyd is just levels above him. And at the end of the sixth round, Buddy McGirt tells him, look, sorry, you're done. They call it at that point. Uh, he gets a, a TKO victory in the 11th round over Thomas Damgard. And then he himself gets knocked out twice more, once by Carlos Baldomir and once by Alfonso Gomez. And at that point, 2007, Guy decides it's time to wrap up his career.
0: I appreciate that the trainer recognized the potentially self-destructive tendency of that might have led him to continue fighting Floyd Mayweather, having seen him clearly throw himself to the whims of fate in regards to his life.
1: Right. And it's, it's one thing to leave him in there if it's a fight that he actually has a chance of winning. But when you're being thoroughly outclassed and getting beat up, it's, you know it makes it a little easier. Arturo Gotti's life does end on a very sad note and a very a very disputed note. So normally with all these winnings, you assume a guy going to ride off into the sunset. Uh, he has his wife. He has his daughter. You know, they're going to live a beautiful life happily ever after. About two years after he retires, he's down in Brazil on vacation with his wife and his daughter. His uh, sister is actually set to be married while he's down there. They're going to get married in Brazil. The whole family's down there. And Gotti is just, he's found dead. And this is where all the facts come into high dispute. Everything that I'm going to say now is, I'm not saying any of these are facts. These are all disputed. There are multiple sides. There are multiple narratives. The original conclusion of the Brazilian police and the assertion of Arturo Gatti's wife was that he committed suicide by hanging himself. Anybody who knows Arturo Gatti disputes this. The the, the mental health things at play are obviously very, very difficult to talk about, and I'm certainly not going to try to be an expert on them. But basically, all the family members are saying there's no way Arturo would ever do anything like that. There are several investigations into this. First of all, it's important to note, originally, the Brazilian authorities did label it a homicide. They then changed their narrative to call it uh, a death by suicide. This was after the coroner's autopsy, and that's when his widow was set free. So
0: she was arrested initially.
1: She was arrested initially. Basically, the the, the main hole in her alibi is that she had no explanation for how she failed to notice that her husband was dead in the same apartment as her for 10 hours. That's the main hole in her alibi.
2: decent hole, Yeah.
1: (laughs) A decent-sized hole in the alibi. At the end of July, about three weeks after Arturo Gatti uh, passed away, the Canadian government seeked more information, we were able to secure a second autopsy in Quebec. The uh, pathologist very quickly concludes that there are injuries that the Brazilian coroner team failed to notice, several bruises to his body, and almost a year later, the circumstances are still very unclear in 2010. At the family's request at this point, they exhumed the body to conduct yet another autopsy. Jean Brochot says, we've been waiting for this a long time, and it's going to take a while before conclusions can be made. The report is released in November of 2011. The one point that everybody agrees is that Arturo Gatti died by asphyxiation via neck constriction. The, this Quebec report also identifies that he had a muscle relaxant in his system along with alcohol. They noted that the combination could induce symptoms such as anxiety, confusion, and psychosis. However, there is also an obvious presence of post-mortem lividity, which would indicate that the body was suspended for some time before it ended up on the floor. There's two more private investigations that go into his death. These are both done in the United States after being hired by Arturo Gatti's family. Again, important to remember who's paying them, but both of these investigations conclude that there is no way his body would have ended up on the floor in the position that it was if he had hanged himself. And their conclusion was that the wife had an accomplice in murdering Gotti. The motive would have been to, of course, secure his money. It's worth noting that three weeks prior to his death, his wife coerced him into voiding their prenuptial agreement. She had threatened to leave Gotti and take the son with her if he did not agree to ending the prenup. Those are facts. That's all that is known. About the way that Arturo Gatti died, again, the official conclusion of the Brazilian government is that this was a suicide via hanging, but facts are in great dispute. One thing that is not a dispute, obviously tragic to lose a legend of the sport at such a young age with the ability to enjoy the the fruits of his labor still ahead of him. There is a, uh, an episode on Investigation Discovery about specifically his death and all the circumstances surrounding that, if anybody wants to take a deeper dive there. but Again, I would direct everybody back. Watch round nine of Gotti Ward. Most incredible thing I've ever seen in a boxing ring, perhaps in any sport. And just, you know, so thankful to Arturo Thunder Gotti and Irish Mickey Ward for putting those fights on for us. Because, I mean, they're going to live forever. As, as long as digital media exists, those fights are going to be some of the first things people talk about when it comes to boxing. So Arturo Thunder Gotti, uh, a certifiable guy in my book.
0: I mean, depending on your personal opinion of Mark Wahlberg, those could be incredibly cathartic to watch, if you want to think of it that way. He seems fine. I mean, he's done some really... He's been a racist piece of
1: shit before, but we'd like to believe in growth, right? He can't be still as racist as he used to be, right? He has to be at least yeah. less racist. He might still be
2: he's... And he's, he, he himself has admitted that he was very racist and had a lot of terrible worldviews. And the fact that he had admitted that and... Now is open about the fact that he was a piece of shit. I think that itself showcases a lot of growth, not knowing Mark Wahlberg personally.
0: Well, either way, I enjoyed that very much. I'm glad that Gotti didn't die in the ring, because I'm not going to lie, the way you were going, I had a feeling we were going to hear a guy that got killed in the ring. But uh, he brought the thunder. I do also appreciate that we got to hear a lot of very good boxing nicknames.
1: And, yeah, I mean, boxing is such a great realm for, for these incredible nicknames. But, I mean, fighting in general, and, I mean, Xavier, I don't know who your guy is, but I know that we're looking to mix up. Don't say any more nicknames. I, I, have, I, have, I have a bit about this. Okay, we're going we're gonna to hold it there. I'm going to let Xavier roll with the bit.
2: Before I get into that, though, I did want to give a quick shout-out to someone. that I didn't do a full dive on. Abe Ruth, obviously, in the uh, news because of home run chase. Did you know that there was a guy whose name was, whose nickname was Babe Ruth's legs? What? So there was a guy who played for the Yankees named Sammy Bird, who was nicknamed both Babe Ruth's legs and Babe Ruth's caddy because near the end of Babe Ruth's career, he got taken out for pinch runners and defensive placements all the time because he was in awful shape, and so. This guy, Sammy Bird, was always brought in to run for and be the defensive replacement for Babe Ruth, so he gained the nickname Babe Ruth's Legs. He was also an incredible golfer, so they called him Babe Ruth's caddy as well, and he ended up quitting baseball to then compete in the PGA Tour and finished second in the PGA Championship one year, becoming the first person to be in a World Series and major golf tournament. He's the golf Darren Erstad. Man, being the
0: platoon
2: counterpart of Babe Ruth, what a good gig. Just Babe Ruth's legs, and I thought that was fantastic, but for this, I had to talk about combat sports, because as Diaz so eloquently informed us, combat sports have always been filled with fantastic nicknames, and MMA is no different. Quentin Rampage Jackson, Chuck the Iceman Liddell, the Prodigy BJ Penn the Korean zombie Jung Chang-sung, and a ton of others. Yes, I like the Korean zombie too, James.
1: I can see it in your face. Here's how great of a nickname Korean zombie is. I never knew what his actual name was until you just said it. They only call him the Korean zombie. If you go to his Wikipedia page, it just says the Korean zombie. It doesn't actually
2: say his name.
0: I'm going to hold it against whoever you are doing that they're not the Korean zombie, but please proceed. So the, thing is, the
2: Korean zombie is still active, so, you know.
0: We got, we got eyes on it. The committee is watching that career with great interest.
2: Yes, but there is one man whose nickname is the perfect reflection of the brutal nature of this sport. I am talking about Vonderlay Silva, also known as the Axe Murderer. That's, that's
0: pretty violent.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: You are like a squeamish person around violence sometimes, Xavier.
2: I am a squeamish person around violence, but my father loves combat sports. So I watched a lot of them as a kid, even if I don't like blood in real life.
1: Yeah, but I mean, fight, fighting's not.
0: All right. Bad sports aren't real life. Fighting's
1: it, it's different. No, I, no, no, it is different. I mean, I was gonna say, I mean, Wanderlei was my favorite Silva in MMA for a while until Anderson came about. Spider. Yeah, yeah. Also, Spider. Yeah, we had Spider Mitchell. We need to find like a mixed, like basketball martial arts thing to settle who like the better is. Like, it's, it's a basketball game, but you can also be submitted via armbar.
0: In Donovan uh, I mean, I Mitchell's mean, defense, defense. Oh, in his defense, he's also spied up. AH. So I think we're good. Fair. I think we can maintain that.
1: Fair. It's it's, it's. Silva
0: <laughs> spider with the hard R.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if we include that back. I mean, we all
2: thought it. So, enough about Anderson Silva. I'm going to talk about Vanderlei Silva. Born July 3rd, 1976 in Curitiba, Brazil. At a young age, he begins training in Muay Thai and kickboxing at the Chute Boxe Academy in his hometown. Anyone who doesn't know Muay Thai is also known as the Art of the Eight Limbs, and it focuses on quick stand-up striking with heavy use of the elbows and the knees, along with the fists and shins. You're essentially hitting with everything as fast as you can, and usually with the most bony parts of your body. It's very painful.
0: It's crumping
2: with the intent to harm someone. Honestly, yeah, kind of. That's a good description for it. Vandalay has his first amateur fight at 13. Saw his opponent enter the ring wearing uh, fancy tailored fight shorts in a monkal, which is the ceremonial headband that is traditionally worn by Thai boxers and Muay Thai professionals. And he's scared out of his mind. Then the opening bell rings. I closed my eyes and started swinging as hard as I could. Ten seconds later, I knocked him out. I don't know if you'd call it a killer instinct. I just know you either have it or you don't.
0: Could could I, I apologize that this is me trying to give away spoilers. Does the axe murderer at any point end up being a real murderer?
2: The axe murderer is not a real murderer.
0: Okay, I I felt like that was, I mean, not to continue to drive the pun into the ground, but it felt like there was a blade hanging over my head for a
2: little bit. No, the the axe murderer does not kill anyone. Does he give people maybe some bad brain damage later in in life? Possibly, but most combat sports professionals have done that, so I don't know if we can hold that against him. They know what they're signing up for. But so Silva ends up joining the Brazilian army as a teenager while continuing his fighting on the side, but fighting is his true passion and people recognize his ability. Eventually, he joins a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school and starts competing in Vale Tudo tournaments. Vale Tudo is a Brazilian precursor to current MMA, and it's essentially a form of combat sport with Very few rules, if any. In the U.S., it's also known as no holds barred. It's pretty much just bare knuckle. You get in the ring and you fight until someone's unconscious. It's just fighting. Yeah, it's just fighting with like some spectators in a ring. There's really no other rules whatsoever.
0: Quick philosophical question for the two of you. Probably the two most basic things that ever started as sports were running and exactly what you're describing here, a bunch of people gathering around two dudes fighting. Which do you think came first, fighting or racing?
1: Fighting. I mean, I, mean, I guess even, I think by any measure it's fighting. Because I was going to say at first, for sport, maybe racing. But, I mean, they did some fucked up shit with the Gladiators. So, I think fighting. Final answer. I think
2: it's fighting just because I, I can picture cavemen fighting first for dominance or food or anything, and then just doing it for fun before doing anything else. I I think it's fighting. There we go. Asked and answered. So Vale Tudo, now, you know, it's considered a type of hybrid style of MMA with submission grappling and Muay Thai. And the Shude Boxe Academy is famous now as a Vale Tudo training ground for a lot of up-and-coming Brazilian fighters. So it went from these no-holds-barred matches to An actual fighting style that's, like, very well known. So Silva trains here, competes in these tournaments. His first professional match that we have records for was uh, November 1st, 1996, in the Brazilian Vale Tudo fighting organization, the BVF. In this fight, he even falls out of the ring because of just how nuts things are, but gets back in and knocks out Dilson Filho with a right elbow. He then fights in BVF 10 against Marcelo Bobosa, submits him due to a, a shoulder injury. After this, he moves on to some international championship events. During the IVC 2 on September 15, 1997, he fights three matches in the same day. You know, some fighters might not fight three times in a year now, but this was a different era. He knocks out Sean Borme with a kick to the head. He submits Agedio da Costa through punches. And then he does get his first loss to Artur Mariano due to a doctor stoppage.
0: That doctor stoppage should have happened at the beginning of the third match.
2: So listen listen to this. Silva dominates Mariano with punches and knee strikes, but gets a cut open above his left eyelid. He cut opens back up again multiple times because Silva continued to use the cut side of his head to headbutt Mariano over the course of the match. Because headbutting is legal. And I have seen video of this fight because it is recorded even though it was 25 years ago. He is just slamming his cut head into Mariano's head the entire time until his, the entire left side of his face is covered in blood and they stop the fight against his wishes. He did not get beaten by Mariano, he beat himself by his refusal to stop headbutting with his cut face. The best part about this is, in the highlight package for this video, it opens with what I presume is an intro they filmed before this tournament, where a young Silva in Portuguese says, I'm just going to promise one thing, a lot of violence. An important thing is to deliver on what you promise. Even if it meant opening his own skull up to gushing blood, he promised on that. So after this, he gets another win at IVC Six. And then gets invited to UFC and competes on October 16, 1998 at UFC Brazil, the first ever UFC event in Brazil, a match against Vitor Belfort. He does lose within 44 seconds after being knocked against the cage and stopped by the referee. Not Embarrassing
0: the on your hometown. Yeah, man.
2: Yeah, it's, it's not the best start for him. But he goes back to the IBC. Next fight, he beats Adrian Serrano by knockout in 22 seconds. And then his fight after that, he beats Eugene Jackson by TKO in 32 seconds. This is the fight that earns him the nickname the Axe Murderer, because the way he's just hammering on Jackson with his elbows, it looked like he was just chopping him to pieces with an axe. So no actual death, James. But he, he was hammering a guy to a bloody pulp with his... Elbows, which is pretty painful. He returns to the octagon at UFC 20 and puts Tony Patera to sleep with a knee to the head in his first fight outside of Brazil. At this point, he gets asked to come to Japan to compete in the fledgling Pride Fighting Championships. So I don't know how many people remember, but at this point in the early 2000s, Pride is new, UFC is still pretty new. And they end up being like the two big things. UFC mostly in America and the West, and Pride in Japan. Uh, They're both really on Spike TV.
0: UFC is Blu-ray, and Pride is, I'm going to guess because I don't hear about it now, hd DVD.
2: You know what? I'll I'll go with that. I'll go with that. He wins his first three fights in Pride, and then he gets asked to compete in UFC Ultimate Japan 3 for the vacant light heavyweight bout against Tito Ortiz. During this fight... A Silva right hook staggers Ortiz so badly that he actually turns and runs away from him to the other edge of the octagon to try to get some breathing room. He literally turns his back and sprints away. And there is video of this. Nowadays, Ortiz probably would have been disqualified because it counts as timidity, which is an actual official foul in MMA. Any fighter who purposely avoids contact, runs away or fakes an injury gets fouled for timidity, and can be disqualified.
1: Now, hold on. but it- Purposely avoiding contact is, like, the main defensive skill in fighting. Like, I, I get all the <laughs> other things that they said. But purposefully avoiding contact is, like, the only way you can be in this profession and potentially avoid CTE. I get it, and I get that's not what they actually mean. But the verbiage needs to be cleaned up. A lawyer like yourself, Xavier, needs to go and advise them to clean that language. will yep. br- I'll bring that to the world uh, MMA official bodies.
2: But they do not have this rule at the time. So Ortiz does not get disqualified. And he does eventually win a unanimous decision. Silva's like, all right, I'm done with UFC for now. So he sticks with pride. He doesn't lose a fight with pride for over four years. In his first 20 fights... He wins all 18 that end in decisions. There was one no contest for an accidental groin kick in another fight that was under modified rules against a dude named Mirko Krokop, actually a Croatian anti-terrorism special forces police officer, hence the name Krokop. It is just Croatian cop. So his nickname is Mirko Croatian cop. Okay,
0: just because we've had one fighter who has changed their name legally to their nickname, I feel like I need to clarify, is that now legally his name?
2: No, I think it's like Mirko, yeah, Mirko Filipovic. He was known professionally as Mirko Kroka. So for this fight, you know, Pride experimented with rules a lot of times, and they said that if this one went the limit, it would be declared as a draw, essentially as a way to incentivize them trying to knock each other the fuck out. It does go the limit, so it is considered a draw. So 18 wins, one draw because they didn't knock each other out, and then one no contest. During this time, he defeated the man who was considered number one in the world, Kazushi Sakuraba. He does that twice. The first time, he knocks him out in one minute. The second time, he knocks him out and wins the first ever Pride Middleweight Championship. The first couple years of Pride, they didn't have title belts, so this was the first one. He would go on to defend this title multiple times. He also starts a memorable rivalry with Quentin Rampage Jackson, which is later considered both exceptionally violent in one of the best rivalries in MMA history. So at this time, Rampage is relative unknown, hadn't fought much, especially on big stages, and hadn't brought to Japan as a warm-up for Sakuraba after impressing in a loss against Sakuraba, becomes a contender in his own right. After a victory over Kevin Randleman, Jackson is given the microphone and starts talking directly to Silva, who was in the audience. He was sitting next to the ringside. I want you, boy. It's going to be me and you. Silva jumps up to his feet, goes to the ring, goes face-to-face with Jackson. Jackson says, you have my belt. You're keeping it warm for me. Silva yells at him, my belt and shoves him over. They almost get into a brawl in the ring, but they have to be restrained by multiple Pride officials. Doesn't take long for them to have an actual first fight. And Silva defeats Jackson by kneeing him in the face 20 times in a row. So, like many good rivalries, they gotta have a rematch. So they fight again at Pride 28, high octane. This time, in the second round, Silva knocks Jackson into the ropes and knees him in the head multiple times, causing him to fall unconscious with blood pouring out of his head.
0: I continue to remain amazed how much knees factor into all of this.
2: Well, I mean, that's that's his style. It's, you know, Not every mixed martial artist will focus on knees, but he did grow up at a Muay Thai academy, where he learned a lot of Muay Thai, and then added that to some Brazilian jiu-jitsu
1: to get his grappling abilities. I just also feel like, I mean... First of all, I mean, just from like a layman's perspective, you can generate so much more force with your legs versus your arms. And the hardest part of the leg is the knee. You're not going to get as much whip as you would with the foot. But if I had to pick the most destructive single strike that could be thrown to a person, I think it would be a well-placed knee to the temple. I, I, I mean, anybody's lights are going out on that. So, it, it's kind of hard to do this
2: justice just by talking about it. There's also a video of this, and it's wild. So, Silva has his hands around the back of Jackson's head, and is just kneeing him repeatedly. And then, you know, Jackson falls unconscious in the middle of this, falls into the ropes, where the only thing that kept him from just cracking his head open outside the floor was that the ropes stopped the middle part of his body, so his torso and head are draped over the ropes, overlooking the floor, while his legs are dangling on the inside of the ring still. Sports Illustrated names this the Knockout of the Decade, and Silva gets named the Fighter of the Year 2004 by both Sherdog sure and Wrestling Observer. Wade <laughs>
0: absolutely just murder that guy.
2: Yeah, he couldn't uh, he, rampage. Jackson was not very happy after, the, after these two fights. Silva's five-year Pride Unbeaten run eventually does end on December 31st, 2004, in a controversial split decision loss against heavyweight Mark Hunt. So Silva took this fight on two days' notice, and Hunt was 80 pounds heavier. It was not a very smart fight to take. He did do still well. Both commentators of the fight thought that he should have won, but wasn't able to knock out a guy 80 pounds heavier than him on two days' notice. So Pride essentially becomes defunct. They had a Yakuza scandal, uh, which...
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, please, tell me more about this Yakuza scandal.
2: I'm not going to get crazy into the Yakuza scandal, but it was a lot of issues with the people at the top maybe having some dealings with the Yakuza to secure television rights and things like that. And when it came to light, they maybe got in a bit of trouble and had to sell Pride. They sold Pride to the company that owned UFC. So, at this point, UFC just guts pride
1: and it pretty much ends. I implore our listeners to also look into the ties of uh, the Yakuza to the Floyd Mayweather exhibitions that have been happening in Japan. We're not asserting anything on this podcast. We're just saying, do your own research. (laughs) So,
2: after this, Silva does officially signed a contract with UFC in August 17, 2007. And his first match is against Chuck the Iceman Liddell at UFC 79. Liddell, the star in the UFC world, does win by unanimous decision. After the match, Silva said, win or lose, I like to give the emotion for my fans. He promised the next time he would deliver a win. And he kept that promise because at UFC 84, he knocks out Keith Jardine in 36 seconds. Kind of wild to me how short
0: so many of these highly publicized fights are. Boxing, you're, you're bound to get most of the time at least a few rounds, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, you'll get at least a few rounds a lot. And honestly, I mean, so the point you just made, James, is a big reason why a lot of people will still say WWE is the most entertaining quote unquote, combat sport, obviously, you know, we're adults, no offense to our dear friend, Mr. Medicinal, it's fake, but because it's fake, you know, you're going to get three, four hours of entertainment anytime you tune into a pay-per-view versus with a boxing or an MMA pay-per-view, sure, there could be eight fights scheduled. It may last a combined 10 minutes. Yeah, but everyone likes the knockouts. That's why they
2: have bonuses for knockout of the night. It's like, okay, I paid this money for the pay-per-view or for the ticket, but I saw someone go to sleep real bad, and that's what a lot of people tune in to see. And Silva was very good at letting people see him put people to sleep. After this, his next fight, is against an old friend. UFC 92, he gets a third fight against Quentin Rampage Jackson. Now they are both UFC fighters said the lead-in has the customary bad blood, shoves at the weigh-in, throat slashing gestures, a lot of name-calling and stuff like that. But during the fight, Jackson finally gets a modicum of revenge. He knocks out Silva with a left hook in the first round. He does then continue punching Silva in the head after he's unconscious on the ground, and the referee has been trying to stop the fight. The video of this is wild, like many other things I have... Talked about so far today, where the referee is literally getting in the way and Rampage is ignoring him, just punching the unconscious Silva in the head. And the referee actually has to shove Jackson in the back to get him to stop punching an unconscious man in the head. And there was a lot of talk after this about you know, maybe he should be suspended or fined or some other punishment for this behavior because not really what the UFC wants to see. But nothing happens. Jackson is, gets away with it. And he gets to be like, hey, I punched you in the head multiple times. And that's how I got my revenge for all those things that happened in Japan. After another loss to Rich Franklin at UFC 99, Silva then announced he had to be out of action for, until 2010 because he underwent facial surgery to repair his nose, which had initially been broken the second time he fought Crow Cop and then repeatedly broken in later matches, and removed some scar tissue above his eyes to avoid bleeding and being easily cut open. The surgery allowed him to breathe through a completely blocked nose that he had not been able to breathe through for years, and increased his oxygen intake by 30%, according to a doctor's estimates. These are the things that happen when you get punched in the face and headbutt people for a living. So he comes back makes his middleweight debut, February 21st, 2010, against Michael Bisping during UFC 110. And he wins in a unanimous decision, his first win in over two years. After the fight, Bushman Silva tells the audience, in your life, you have bad moments. Everybody has bad moments. But if you believe in God and working hard, good moments, they'll come. After this, he's supposed to fight Yoshihiro Akiyama, but breaks multiple ribs in training. And then... Gets a really bad knee injury and has to undergo knee surgery. At this point, he's not able to come back until summer of 2011. The day before his 35th birthday, he comes back and fights Chris Levin at UFC 132. And he gets knocked out. We're
1: at UFC 132. And what was the first one that he participated in? I remember you saying 20 earlier, but there was one before that. So his first UFC fight ever, it was
2: UFC Brazil, Ultimate Brazil. His first numbered UFC fight was 20. 100 UFCs later. peace. So, after this fight, Dana White says, I think it would be best for Silva to retire. But that the ultimate decision is up to him. Silva doesn't feel like retiring. So he comes back for UFC 139 November, defeats Kung Lee by TKO in the second round.
1: Wasn't Kung Lee the villain in Bloodsport?
2: He might have been. Chung li is another, like, early days UFC fighter. He was definitely in a lot of movies and stuff, but I don't know. Chung li was in Bloodsport.
0: Chung li is the character in Bloodsport. That's the distinction. Xavier, you you thought we were saying this UFC person had been in the movie Bloodsport that precedes it by uh, about a decade or so. That is not the case.
2: (laughs) I didn't know the movie Bloodsport, so,
1: you know, I had to... uh... What? Xavier, you gotta see Bloodsport. Next offseason, we got to have like a movie week where we just go through different sports movies that people need to see. The first one I'm going to talk about, Xavier, is going to be Bloodsport. It is a fantastic fucking film. I
2: I just went to the Bloodsport Wikipedia and under Legacy, it says former U.S. President Donald Trump has described Bloodsport as his favorite film.
1: Aw, don't ruin it for me. (laughs) Don't ruin it for me. (laughs) Fuck
2: out of here. Back to Bondale Silva. He loses again in his next match against Rich Franklin. But then fights Brian Stan back in the Saitama Super Arena, the site of many of his pride victories, and knocks him out in the second round. So he is losing more fights at this point, but he always comes back with a knockout afterwards. No interest in, in stopping here. So after this he had signed on to coach the Ultimate Fighter Brazil 3 with rival Chael Sonnen. This is supposed to culminate, you know, after they have the whole show with a fight between the two at UFC 173. Unfortunately, a brawl between the two during filming leads to Silva injuring both his hand and his back.
1: And this pushes the fight back to UFC 175. So as opposed to my instances where a brawl breaks out at the fight, a brawl broke out before the fight. A
2: brawl broke out at the... Filming of a show where they train people to fight that was supposed to end
1: with them fighting. I mean, Bane, bro. That's a classic uh, Ultimate Fighter line. I need you to look those up if you haven't seen it. Who who would have expected if you take two
2: people who don't like each other and tell them to coach people about how to fight that they're going to fight each other? But So this fight gets pushed back to UFC 175. Then the injured Silva didn't attend a hearing to get licensed for the fight and refused to undergo a random drug test. Then Sonnen fails the drug test and retires immediately afterwards. According to Sonnen, Silva had never actually signed up for the fight. So even though UFC had been advertising the whole time, Silva, because of his injury, had never actually agreed to do it. They just were like, you're under contract, so we expect that you're going to be doing this. So he didn't feel like he had to show up to this licensing hearing because he never agreed to the fight. And he skipped out on the drug tests because he had been taking diuretics to offset all of the anti-inflammatories he was on after severely injuring his hand and back during the filming of the show. He's initially given a lifetime ban for refusing to do the drug tests, but this gets overturned by Nevada District Court because they ruled that he had never agreed to do the fight, so... UFC did not have the jurisdiction to force him to take a drug test when he wasn't going to be fighting. It is the most technicality of technicality, one of the very few ever overturned drug bans in sports history. They're not happy with each other right now, UFC and and Wanderlei Silva. So he doesn't fight again for another couple of years. Eventually has to apologize to UFC because he had said that they rigged fights. And they eventually let him out of his contract. So, years and years and years have passed, and it's now 2017, and he signs with Bellator. And at this point, he does finally fight Sonnen, four years after they were supposed to do it before. They're both late 30s right now, and this is just 39-year-olds beating the crap out of each other. And Sonnen does win by unanimous decision. But Silva's still got one more in. So he comes back a year later to fight Quentin Rampage Jackson for a fourth time, under a third different fighting organization umbrella. Jackson does even up the series with a TKO victory. So they have fought each other four times over 15 years on two different continents. And, you know, I'm sure Silva is happy that he won the first two, the ones that really mattered when they were young and in their prime. At least Jackson got to say, the last two times we fought, I kicked your ass.
0: God, they really just hate each other.
2: Yeah, there's not really the, um, the Gotti Ward shaking hands. Like, hey, we're, we're together in the hospital. It's like, no, I will kill you type of rivalry that we got here. Despite not fighting for another four years, he didn't officially retire until last month. But he's left the door open for boxing because, you know, you never quite leave the life of fighting. As many people can attest, you know, Manny Pacquiao running for president of the Philippines while still boxing people into his 40s.
0: Manny Pacquiao draining some very poorly shot threes right now in Filipino basketball.
2: That's the thing. If you're a fighter and your whole life has been beating people up, it's really hard to do anything else other than beat people
1: up. What you think of, you know, there's quick twitch muscles, right? And that's what... Most basketball, soccer players, they have the quick twitch. And then you sacrifice that in building up your strength to be able to throw these absolute fucking haymakers of punches. But yet, I mean, to James's point, if you haven't seen Manny Pacquiao shoot a basketball, when I say slingshot, that doesn't even do it justice. Like, the ball goes straight back behind his head, and then it's just like, it cannot even be described as a shooting motion. It's like most similarly compared to like a soccer throw-in. The closest... Replica of the motion that he shoots with. And I do love Manny
2: Pacquiao, but Wanderlei Silva, across a 22-year MMA career, 35-14-1 with 27 knockout wins, championship belts on two different continents, longest unbeaten streak in Pride history, with the most wins in title bouts, and the most consecutive title defenses in Pride. Multiple Fighter of the Year and Knockout of the Year awards. His style was considered feral. of terrifying ferocity, brawling and relentless. A retrospective on his career said that, quote, Silva has always been a savage fighter, but his core has been simple without being stupid, an advocate of consistent aggression with no compromise. His modus operandi, his architecture of aggression, has always been knock out or be knocked out. 2018 World MMA Awards gives him a special Lifetime Achievement Award, which is one of only five that they've ever awarded. One of the other four was the Bruce Buffer, which I think is fantastic because if anyone else deserves it, it's it's that guy. But we'll see if he comes back to do boxing in the future. Wouldn't put it past him. You know, Maybe him and Rampage Jackson feel like making some money in 10 years and decide to be the 50-year-olds who beat the crap out of each other like we see sometimes. It's
0: tied, it's tied now, so they got to do it tied. at some point.
2: But also, like a lot of former MMA fighters such as Crow Cop, Tito Ortiz, and BJ Penn. He has also tried his hand at politics. I don't know why these MMA fighters want to do politics so bad, but so many of them do. He did run for Brazilian Congress this year. And, you know, he got 14,000 votes. Not not insignificant for someone who is the axe murderer whose qualifications were beating the crap out of people. But he didn't win. You know, we'll see if he tries again, but the thing that he's best at, nearly killing people with his knees and his elbows. And, you know, that's why I want to talk about The axe murderer, Wanderlei
1: Silva. A great guy, a a great early MMA guy. I love early MMA because it was like a person of Wanderlei's stature as well fits in perfectly there. Because like we're kind of just making up the rules as we go along. Like, yes, savagely beat the fuck out of people. Like I think at UFC 20, I think eye gouge, I think was still a thing at the time you were allowed to do could do like small digit manipulation to try to break people's fingers. And Wanderlay, at least coming up in that early era where almost anything went, I'm almost surprised they didn't let him bring an axe into the ring at one point. Why not? <laughs> we're, we're basically there already with those fucking destructive knees and elbows. I mean, why not go all the way? That's
2: when you just sharpen, usually sharpen your, uh, your elbows a bit. Just get a whetstone, just make them cut people. I feel like that like I would expect that a little more than, you
1: know, bringing a weapon in. Well, and, but and some of them... Graphs, maybe, so you have little spikes coming out. Some of them are psychopathic enough that they would actually do that to get an edge in the ring. Early MMA, like 90s and early 2000s, it was a different sport.
2: We think that MMA now is brutal, and it is very brutal. It's still extremely dangerous sport, but the things that you could do back then... And they were also really long. They were like a lot of these fights. You know, if they weren't knockouts, like twice the length of uh, of of current fights. You had rounds that were ten minutes long, as if they were boxing matches. But you were just getting kicked in the head nonstop.
1: Well, at the original UFC, you could only win by knockout or submission. That was the only way. It were timed rounds. There would be breaks in between, but the fight would either end when one of you could not respond. Or one of you voluntarily said, I no longer wish to fight.
2: It's, it's playoff overtime hockey. Exactly. And that's the knockout or be knocked out belief that guided Vondelay Silva and his wanting to beat the crap out of people.
0: And knockout or be knocked out is appropriate because we, we do now have to consider that only one of these three is going to be able to make it through this as we, the Gabunel, consider who is appropriate to induct in this week. My only defense of Purvis Ellison to start would be, I do believe that his nickname likely factored into his career the most of all of these. With that being said, I am thoroughly won over by the story of Arturo Gatti and more than anything, his beautiful friendship with Mark Wahlberg.
1: People don't appreciate it, but they actually did just do a body swap, Mickey Ward and Mark Wahlberg, so... Essentially, all of their experiences are shared now. And for all intents and purposes, Arturo Gatti did beat up Mark Wahlberg twice. We can say that as absolute (laughs) fact, which is not disputable. And to me, it's just irrefutable. Yeah, I mean, Gatti, to me, and like, I mean, similar to like Wanderlei, like, I don't think Wanderlei is ever going to be somebody that you're going to say is a top 10 MMA fighter of all time. But there's a difference between like favorite and best, right? And to me, fighting is the one industry where I think it is more important to be favorite versus best. Floyd Mayweather is one of the best fighters of all time. He's a fucking asshole that nobody actually is a fan of. And nobody actually enjoys Floyd Mayweather. And nobody in boxing circles is like, yeah, you know what? Floyd Mayweather, I have his back. I like will hug him after this fight. Versus a guy like Gotti is... Part of that fraternity. I mean, and to me, that's always been my favorite thing about boxing is the respect between modern-day gladiators. That's what you are when you get in that ring. You're a modern-day gladiator. Yeah, I, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say I picked Gotti as much for the nickname as to be able to talk about that trilogy with Mickey Ward because there's just nothing like it. There's nothing like it in the history of sports. So, yeah, I mean, I also, I also love Gotti, of course. All right, so I will
2: say... I think Vonderlay has the best nickname out of the three that we brought because the Axe Murderer is just fantastic. But I do love Arturo Gatti. And
0: I 100% I... acknowledge if we were doing this exclusively on the basis of the Nom de Plume. Yeah,
1: Axe Murderer probably wins that.
0: I mean, Purvis Ellison has the combo. He's got the two times multiplier.
1: Anytime you can get alliteration and rhyme in the same nickname... It's,
0: I mean, there's like two words that rhyme with Purvis and people figured out how to use both of them.
2: That's fair. I just, it's not something that I feel like you would put on a business card. No. I mean, would you put Axe Murderer on a business card?
1: I think if you're Vondale Silva, you 100% do. If, that's fair. If my business is beating the hell out of people, yes, I would absolutely put Axe Murderer on my business card. <laughs> I yeah. do
0: agree, but so, I think at the end i'm I'm still
2: leaning Gotti, like I said, I think Mandalet has the best nickname, but I do love Arturo Thunder Gotti, and I also really like Diaz just focusing on one specific round of a fight with all the passion that he brought to it, so you know i i am I am happy with Arturo Gotti, someone who I also grew up
1: watching and loving, all right, well, with that being the case, it is. Our great honor, it is unfortunate that it is posthumous, but it is just as important and very much our privilege to welcome in one of the most entertaining fighters in the history of boxing, a man of integrity, of honor, a man of guy, Arturo Thundergati. Welcome into the Hall of Guy.
0: Welcome. You Canadian Jersey... I, I forget about the whole stew that made it, but Italian,
2: Canadian, jersey
0: Regardless of what it was, that was one hell of a guy stew.
1: Mix it up in the pot, baby.
0: If you guys would indulge me, I have one final thing I wanted to drop in here for a moment. As I mentioned in making memories, the Orioles did win their 82nd game. 83-79, and baby. They've got a bright future. And an optimistic person sees... Certainly, some playoff appearances in the future. It's been a long rebuild. And something about rebuilds is you do get to see a lot of good guys come through. Now, many of them are old vets who I'm sure we might even think of someday. You know, your Robinson Torinos this year, your Ruben you your Jonathan VR, Andrew Kashner, Matt Harvey, spring training Felix Hernandez. <laughs> and those are great guys, and they will be remembered on their own. I want to take a moment, though, to acknowledge some of the guys who, if we're being generous, might make it back to professional baseball at some point in the future because, look, sometimes you just got to fill the roster with some warm bodies, and I want to acknowledge some of those warm bodies right now. Guys like the pride of South Africa, Pat Velika. You got Dwight Smith Jr. and Travis Lakin Sr. Good old Tommy Eshelman, who goes great with Stevie Wilkerson. Both what they chose to be announced as. Sweet Jesus, is that Jesus Supre over there? Not a chance. It's also Chance Cisco. Both of them. Catchers for the Orioles before our beautiful Adley Rush came about. Jay Flaw. Jay Flaw spelled F-L-A-A. That was a real life reliever for the Baltimore Orioles for a few games. And the single most divisive people in Orioles Twitter the last two years. Just bus riders, Jemai Jones and Zach Louther. Do you guys want to guess how many of those 11 players have negative war?
1: Seven. I'm going to say all.
0: Split the difference and you get the exact answer, which is nine. And they will be remembered fondly as we move into this next era. But they are gone now. And for that, I'm happy.
1: The guys that laid their lives on the line so that Adley Rutschman's big tits could bust out and capture the world
0: (laughs) and lead us to i'm sure an alcs appearance
1: at the very least hey maybe even a world series appearance you know don't don't tell yourself short there Uh, it it would be
0: the first one in 40 years (laughs) uh
2: (laughs) james would not survive that
0: no i would not hopefully though we will all survive until our next episode, which is not going to be next week, folks. We are going to have to take another break. This one was a little more premeditated because uh, I got to get married next week. And these two knuckleheads have to be at that wedding. I have dragged them to it at gunpoint. Oh, so I'm not going to
2: record from, the, uh, fr- from there? I thought
1: that was the plan. Listen to- uh, as <laughs> I said, if either I of you
0: wants to then games
1: Before you say I do, you remember Detlef shrimp?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, that is a good one. No, I mean, hey, if either of you wants to do the editing and upload it, by all means, be my guest. But likely, we will not be here next week. We will return after that with Relitigation, and we'll be happy to welcome you back as we start closing out season four here. Hey, you know what? We celebrated our birthday last year. We take seasons literally. We're going to get you nearly four full goddamn
1: seasons in a year. Four seasons in a year. Not, not quite the same as the, as the turn of the seasons, but I think we've been closely mirroring it, and... Wow, what a, what a year of remembering some guys. It's, it's been fun, it's been stupid, it's been silly, it's been excessive. It hasn't been necessary, but what it has been, is very guy.
0: It has indeed been all of those things, and I have been one of your hosts, James.
1: I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz, and as gold medal Olympian wrestler Dan Gable once said, gold medals aren't really made of gold made of sweat, determination, and a hard-to-find alloy called guys. <laughs>
0: this is the dark guys, soil guys.